Good morning, everyone. It's good to be in the Lord's house today as we have come to worship Him. This will be the seventh and final message in the series on the topic of the all-searching God taken from an exposition of Psalm 139. If you would take your bulletins and stand and let us read the two final verses of the psalm, and then I will later go through the psalm again and then close with these verses. The title of the message today is, Lord, Search Me. Lord, Search Me. Ready? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. You may be seated. As I was finishing up the completing my thoughts for the message yesterday. I went over some of them with my wife, and uh, she mentioned there's a song that we ought to sing in reference to your message today. And I said, what is it? She said, you remember the song, Cleanse Me? And I said, vaguely, sing it a little bit for me. Well, when she started singing it, I knew it immediately. And then, lo and behold, what does Bob close our morning service with, but with the song that Carolyn and I were talking about. The song, the first verse of it goes like this, Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, my Savior, know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. It's appropriate from time to time to remind ourselves that in our singing, nearly all of our hymns are actually prayers. You, and I would encourage you to think as you are singing the words, that you are actually praying to God for Him to do something or an expression of praise. One preacher well put it, there is enough sin all in all of our sing, congregational singing to send us to hell. Because we do not understand that we are actually praying something and we're just mouthing words and not realizing that we are expressing a desire to God for Him to come and do something. And that's especially true of the song that we just sang. It is a prayer unto God for Him to make changes in our lives. Enough said with the introduction there. I'm going to go back and give an introduction to the first message that we brought in this series so that we can close it with these two brief verses and bring us through the psalm in its entirety so that we can see the reason for David making this petition or this prayer. If we take these two words, these two verses rather, and pull them out of the psalm and start then of making applications of our own independently and divorced from the psalm, we will miss the greatness of the psalm in its entirety. So I want us to remind ourselves what the psalm has been about, about the all-searching God. We stated at the outset that the psalm was penned by David and was sent to the chief musician in Israel to have the words put to music and perhaps to be used in the public worship of God. 
We also informed ourselves that many of the Jewish writers believe it is the best of all of David's psalm, even surpassing the 23rd psalm. It's believed to have been written at a time in David's life when his reputation as God's king was being slandered by his political opponents and the surrounding nations and their practices. And thus, in in opposing themselves as enemies of God, David was willing to have the sincerity of his motives as well as his actions searched by God to see if there was any wicked way in him. In doing battle with opponents and adversaries in different belief systems, it's comforting to be able to rejoice in the testimony of a good conscience that before God, you're willing to have him search your heart. This psalm shows us that before we can know our own hearts, we must first know God's character. I repeat that. Before we can know our own hearts, we must first know the character of God. In verses 1 through 6, David presents to us the attribute of God's omniscience or his all-knowing. Follow as we read the passage there with me in your scriptures. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path, my lying down, art acquainted with all my ways, for there's not a word in my tongue. But lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. The first characteristic that David has us presented is the attribute that God is all-knowing. And he's the only being that possesses that capability. There's nothing that God does not know. God has never learned a thing. And he's never forgotten a thing in the strict sense of the word. He is omniscient. He possesses all knowledge of all things that are going to come to pass or have the potential of coming to pass. And this is the one true God who is eternal. And we're going to see here in just a moment that the wicked man that is described in the psalm is a person who denies that attribute of God. That God is all-knowing. Now, it may not be just an unbeliever. It may also be a believer who is unsound in some thought or doctrine or action. For David is going to pray for God to remove any wicked way that exists in him. I ask you, do you ever live, think, and do things as if God does not see you? That's a wicked way. And you need to, and I need to be cleansed from that. Now in verses 7 through 12, we are presented by David with the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, and whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell or Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. The surrounding nations that surrounded Israel were idolaters. And they radically opposed the concept of one true God. They had many, many gods. Didn't matter how many gods you had, just don't claim that there's only one God. 
And when their armies would go to battle, if they had to battle in a valley, then they would pray to the Lord of the valley. If they had to battle on a hillside, they'd pray to the Lord of the hills. David's God is not a God or gods of one locality, but he is the one supreme God who exists everywhere equally throughout the universe. He is unhindered because of his position. He is everywhere and knows everything. Now, are there times in your life in which that you come into this church assembly and you act one way and then you leave and act another way? If so, then you are pretending that God is in some way here, that he is not out there. He is equal in all places at all times and all knowing. So that when a wicked person who practices a wicked way denies that God is omnipresent by their acts or their deeds or their thoughts, then they are viewed by God as possessing wickedness. This is searching, is it not? This goes far beyond than just a sexual matter of having sexual fantasies. Search me, O God, in the privacy of my heart. No, this goes far beyond that. This covers all of our thought patterns and actions from the time that we get up and the time we go to bed every day, 24 hours a day. Because we are prone to not want a God like this. Do you remember I mentioned in one of the messages that the uh, American missionary asked one of the natives of the country of the American Indian, he said, um, I have now been ministering to you for three or four years, and you've never become a Christian. Why do you not want to become a Christian? And the old Indian chief said, I don't like your God. And the missionary said, Why? said, because he's always watching me. He's always watching me. Now, we may chuckle about that. But our prayer is, is there any wicked way in us sometimes where we act as if God doesn't know what we're thinking or doing? Or that we act in a certain way when we are in a, quote, holy place, unquote, but when we get out of this holy sanctuary, then we leave the presence of God. This is what David is dealing with now when he comes to this final prayer here. Search me, O God. Then in verses 13 through 18, we have the omnipotence of God. He is all-powerful. He creates everything, controls everything. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance, or my features, were not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand, and when I awake, I'm still with thee. The God who is all-knowing, who is all-present, is also possessing all power to do whatever his infinite wise will determines is best to be done for his creation. Now, do we ever act like that there are times in which that God is not all powerful? Hmm? I've given this illustration a number of times in this church here briefly without giving the whole scope of it 
Many, many years ago, back in southwest Missouri, I was asked to hold a funeral service for an infant that was stillborn. January day, about 8, 10 degrees outside, snow falling. And in that little tent, why we made a few remarks, and then for the benefit of all those that were trying to keep warm, were ready to dismiss the congregation. And right on the, at the front in the, in the chairs there, there was a young couple, their firstborn son. And right out of the blue, before we dismissed, while well, the young mother looked up at me and said, Pastor, where was God at when my baby died? I've said often that you'd given me that question and 30 days to come up with an answer. I could not have come up with an answer. But immediately, what shot out of my mouth? He's at the same place he was at when his own son died. On the throne, carrying out what infinite wisdom sees best is to be done. Brother Clint, all of us, even though we are believers and seek to walk in the ways of the Lord, all of us at times deny the omniscience of God, the omnipresence of God, and the omnipotence of God. The surrounding nations in which that David uh, was king looked upon the God of Israel with disdain. For that God was offensive because he was also a God who was a God of holy justice and morality. And so they wanted nothing to do with Israel's God, the one supreme God. We're sort of living in a time frame now when that belief is coming back into our American culture. Have any kind of belief you want to in God, uh, just so long as you don't claim that there is but one supreme God. No longer can our political leaders pray in the name of Jesus Christ in public, lest it be offensive to others. Jesus Christ stood one day before a multitude and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. He said on another occasion, I and the Father are one. And so now then, what most public praying consists of is praying to a generic God. A God who is ambiguous, who lacks distinction. And the moment that any religious teacher or a Christian begins to define God in his distinctiveness, that's when the culture rises up and says, ah, that's narrow-minded. We cannot tolerate that. Now, I've said all that to put the psalm in a summary in its cultural time period in which David was laboring. Now, if you would, turn to verses 23 and 24 as we examine this prayer. In verses 19 through 22, David then says that God will slay the wicked, meaning that God is the God of justice and morality. Then we had to deal with David saying that he hated those who hated God. And we had to deal with that to see what that involved and how is it that we are to love our enemies and yet at the same time have a hatred toward them. How is that possible? Time will not allow us to go back and renew our thoughts on that. But David would make the statement that he would hate those who hated God and took God's name in vain, in a mockery sense. But David is also saying, my disgust with those who belittle this one true God 
is not just taken out on my enemies. There is enough within me that is wicked that needs to be dealt with. So David is not a hypocrite here. He is acknowledging that he possesses a wicked nature which also has the capacity to forget the character of the one true God. And so he prays, search me, O God, and know my heart. Look at the first two words, search me, search me. Here we have the duty of self-examination. Now, self-examination is not a simple thing, as it may appear at first sight. We have no idea of the hidden wickedness that lies within us. I've been a Christian for over 50 years. And I am still discovering new things about me that disgusts me. Hmm? It's almost like getting a room cleaned up in a house and you think everybody is it's all clean, you're ready for company. And then God opens a door and there's a whole dusty, filthy room that you haven't even touched yet. The human heart is capable of hidden wickedness. Be assured of this, that if you sincerely ask God to search you, he'll do it. And if you ask him to try you, he will try you. And the trial will not be a light matter. I'm convinced that we really do not understand what we are asking God when we ask him for some growth in grace, some increase in holiness, more inner peace, or wisdom for some spiritual attainment. I don't think we really understand what we're asking God for. Why? Because all of these things contain a condition. And this condition involves a discipline or act of self-denial. And the amount of discipline is usually in proportion to the size of the thing for which we are asking. Look at the next word, search me. This is the prayer of a true servant of God. There may exist within the heart of a genuine Christian much undetected evil. If you're here this morning and you profess that you are a Christian and yet you are in that category of Christians which struggle with constant doubt whether you're saved or not. Listen, there may exist within the heart of a genuine Christian much detected evil. Some Christians constantly doubt their salvation because they believe that if they really loved God and were truly saved, they would not have such wickedness in their lives. And thus they struggle with that. But that is not necessarily the case, because our justification before God in Christ does not eradicate the old sinful nature. We are yet imperfect. A conviction of God's omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, His sovereignty, his justice, his holiness, his hatred of sin is consistent with the presence of evil coexisting in the heart. Hmm? It's not either or. It's both and. Secondly, a conviction of our hatred of indwelling sin is consistent with the presence of evil in the heart. You may both at the same time hate sin and be practicing sin. And that's not an oxymoron. That's the struggle of a true believer. 
Oh, wretched man that I am, Paul cried out, who shall deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Christ Jesus, my Lord. I can't do it myself. Only he can do that. A third conviction, a conviction of our acceptance in Christ, of our pardon, of our peace with God, of our reconciliation with God, is consistent with evil in the heart. And fourthly, a conviction of an earnest desire to get rid of all evil is consistent with its indwelling presence in the heart. I hope some of those thoughts struck deep. If you struggle with the fact that as a Christian, you're still having to confess your sins and ask God for forgiveness, that's not an indication that you're not a Christian. Get it? David is a man after God's own heart, and yet he's praying, Oh, God, search me. The duty of self-examination. Next three words in our text. Know my heart. The heart and its thoughts must be made right before the actions of the life can be set right. That is, you'll never change a certain action until your heart is asking for that action to change. The thoughts of the heart, as a man thinketh in his heart, the scripture talks about, describe that faculty of our humanity which is unseen by others and known only by God. It is that which we think about. And before there is an action, there is a thought that precedes that action. So that if we want to ask God for a change in certain activities that are going on in our life, that must start with a thought. It must start with a petition. And that's not easy. It takes great courage to face up that there are things about ourselves that are not right in the ways of God. Oh, we're real easy to find fault with others And we can quickly point out the wickedness of others, whether it be in the political, the religious, the military, the economic realm. We can really point out where they are wrong. But it takes great courage to do battle with what's going on in here. Now, David was a man of courage. You remember he killed a bear? As a young man, a lion. Who else did he kill? You recall the great giant, Goliath. But never did David display such courage as when he determined to deal with his own heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins and even to give to every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. David was not only a man of courage, he was a man of honesty. He wanted to know that all his sins, all of of all his sins, so that he might be delivered from them. Hmm? One of the characteristics of the deceitfulness of sin is that it seeks to hide a person from themselves in order to prevent them from seeing their true condition. It's like putting a blinder over the eyes so the person can't look into the mirror. That's what sin does. And so David prays, search me and know my heart. Take away that which would deceive me and let me see myself for what I am in my moral being. 
David was not only a person of courage and honesty, David was a person of wisdom. He prays to God himself. God is the only being in the universe who truly knows himself. We can only know ourselves as we see ourselves in the light of God's character or being. This is why the wicked do not seek after God, because it exposes them as sinful. And only God can expose the heart. Only He can bring cleansing to the heart. I can't forgive you of your sins. No priest can forgive you of your sins. No amount of New Year resolutions is going to do it. Only God who knows the heart can truly make a change in the thought pattern of the heart. Thus David says, show me what's wrong with me and then cleanse me from it. The wicked doesn't want to know what's wrong with them. And thus they never see what's wrong and thus they see no need of cleansing. This person, Jesus, is just some figment of history that has little bearing, if any, of what is going on in human lives today. That's the idea of the wicked. Now look at the next part of the sentence. Try me and know my thoughts. True faith is precious. 1 Peter 1.7 talks about the trial of your faith being much more precious than that of gold that perisheth though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. True faith is like gold. It will endure the test. A true believer is willing to be tried. Hmm? A counterfeit or a hypocrite is unwilling to be tried. A counterfeit cannot stand to be tried. But the true believer is willing to hear, listen, the worst as well as the best. Huh? I'm going to repeat that. A true believer is willing to hear the worst as well as the best. Searching and distinguishing preaching pleases the true believer most. Hmm? If you wanted to take a survey of what is being preached in the churches today which go under the name of Jesus Christ, you will find very few preachers telling people they are sinners and need a Savior and cannot save themselves. And you will hear what is popular, what people come into a religious service wanting to be lifted up, made to feel good, and thus, the ministers know that, and they deliberately avoid the worse. But the bad news must precede the good news. For Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. He said, I didn't come to call righteous people to repentance, but sinners to repentance. been preaching 48 years now. I've wondered from time to time why hundreds and hundreds of people over the course of that period of time have come and sat under my ministry and then chose to leave. And several years ago, my wife settled that question for me. It's good to have a wife who knows more than you. Amen. 
I was asking, wonder why all those hundreds when we were there in Oakland, 400 or more I had counted who came and sat under our ministry and left. For various reasons, various ways. She said, I'll tell you why. Your preaching searches the heart. And people will not sit comfortably under your style of preaching. I said, well, I don't know what's in their hearts. She said, no, you don't have to because you preach the Word and the Word does the searching. And if people are dealing with hidden sin in their heart over a course of time, you as the minister unknowingly are going to hit that sore spot. And when you touch it, with the wane, it's like a boil that's festered there. All of a sudden, the person disappears. They refuse to be searched because they only want to hear the best and not the worst. They want to hear about those wicked people in Washington, D.C. Give it to them, preacher. But ever so often, the pastor, if he preaches the whole counsel of God, will touch on a sore spot that's festered. And when it touches, if there is not, oh God, search me, cleanse me of this, you're right. What the preacher is saying is right. It's what the Word says. I'm guilty. It's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. If that attitude is not there, you'll not go back anymore. And you'll go on down the road and find some false prophet that will say, Peace, peace, everything's all right. (laughs) Everything's all right. Just go on your way. Try my thoughts. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Get it? I know, I've sat and listened to preaching. And if it hits something in my life that should not be there, it disturbs me. But rather than running from it, it needs to be confessed and repented of. Because a wicked way will lead ultimately to pain and grief if it be not forsaken. Things are lying ahead for the person that refuses to be changed. And God has a concern about His creatures that they not be unnecessarily exposed to pain and grief. And the wicked way is that which brings that into our lives. Verse 24, And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Look at the term, any wicked way, in our King James Version. Our Hebrew scholars tell us that the word means pain and grief. Pain and grief. Because wicked ways in the end lead to pain and grief. Now, the wicked way is naturally in all of us. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. Here's what we brought into this world when we were given a nature by our mother and father. And you have he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, 
wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation or lifestyle in times past in the lust of the flesh, filling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. All of us came in to this life in the same boat with a nature that is selfish, self-centeredness. I'm number one. I'm the most important being on planet Earth. Consider this wicked way. It may be of many different kinds as it manifests itself in different individuals. Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. Each of us has ways that we participate in that others do not, and vice versa. I have wicked ways in me that you may not have. And you may have wicked ways in you that I don't have. It's what we love. What we participate in. And this wicked way needs to be removed. And Jesus said in John 3, 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Unless there's a radical transformation by the Holy Spirit of God working upon us, we'll never see this thing of how to enter the kingdom and see what the kingdom is all about and desire it and love it because we're in love with ourselves. And only God can remove this wicked way. Mark 10:27. Jesus looking upon them said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Only God can change the wicked way. The wicked way is a way of unbelief, a way of pride, a way of selfishness, a way of worldliness, a way of self-confidence, a way of disobedience. This is what characterizes the life of the unsaved person. And then when the person becomes a Christian by trusting in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross on their behalf, they are declared justified, just as if I'd never sinned, and removed from a state of condemnation. But their moral nature is not eradicated. It is radically changed and given a bent toward the things of God, wherein they began to love the things of the Lord, but it is not perfected. And that's an ongoing thing which will go on until we leave this life here below. And there will be a struggle. All kinds of religious belief systems have been devised to try to get the Christian out of this struggle of how to love God and yet at the same time find yourself still loving self. And none of them get the job done because they will not. Only the removal from this life into a life of perfected holiness at that point will sin be eradicated. But that's why until that time comes, we need to keep on praying, Oh God, make me more like your Son. Remove wickedness from me. Now notice the next little words there. The wicked way is in me. As we are instructed in the previous verses to hate the wicked in their way, so we must hate every wicked way in us. Next part of the sentence, lead me in the way everlasting. Sort of sounds like the Lord's Prayer, doesn't it? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. What is this everlasting way? This is the way that God has set up from the days of old for his creatures to live. 
It's based on everlasting principles. It is the way which holy angels and men walk in the eternal state. It lasts forever, and those who are in this everlasting way will last forever. There'll be no end to it. It's world without end, a world of holiness. It's called the way of holiness. Isaiah 35, 8, And a highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. Jeremiah 6.16, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. Now, a final question this morning. How does God go about revealing to us which is so perfectly known to him, but unknown to us. How does he go about doing that? How does God search the heart? And the answer is very simple. Through his word. Hmm? You avoid contact with the word, and you will not be seeing the wicked way within you. When David sinned against Bathsheba, and was not David a man after God's own heart? Wasn't his sin with Bathsheba a terrible sin? He took another man's wife. Had that man, who was one of his military men, put in front of the battle so he'd be killed and never find out about the baby that, that he bore. This is a man after God's own heart. And yet he committed a very wicked way. When he sinned against Bathsheba, it was God's spoken word that brought conviction and revealed the way of disobedience. Remember the story? Samuel came to him, told him this. <clears throat> Nathan, I'm sorry, the prophet, recorded in Second Samuel 12.7 told him a story. Uh, king, there was this fellow had one little lamb. The fellow next to him had hundreds and hundreds of sheep. And the rich man had a guest come to his house for dinner. Instead of killing one of his own sheep and cooking it, he went next door and took the one little sheep that the poor man had. What do you think we ought to do to him, David? David said, I get a hold of him. He'll pay for that. He was enraged. If Nathan had not made his preaching practical, David would never have seen his sin. Nathan said, what was it, Pete? Thou art the man. And David was broken over that. How does God search the heart? Through the revealed Word of God. Are you in the Word? Are you seeking to understand it better? Seeking to know it better? Remember, you'll never know yourself until you first of all know this God of the Bible. It's in His light that we see light. David confesses his sin, he's pardoned and restored. One final illustration in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter. One day Jesus said he was going to go to a cross, and Peter said, not so, Lord. Then Jesus announced, all of you will deny me. Oh, I never will, Peter replies. And Jesus said, yes, you will. Before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. 
That happened. Peter denied he even knew the Lord before a little maiden who couldn't have heard him at all. And when that rooster crowed, Brother Jim, I have a sermon called God's Sanctified Rooster. That's an interesting concept. When that rooster crowed, we read, Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. How does God search the heart? By the word. So it does little well for you to ask God to search your heart if you lay this book down and never expose yourself to it. It is through the revealed Word of God that our hearts are going to be revealed. Search me, O God, and try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. I close with this prayer. May the all-searching God search out and remove every way in us which would lead to pain and grief later on and lead us into the path of joy and happiness in the knowledge of himself. Oh, my hearers, God is not against us. He is for us. It is that which he knows is going to lead to pain and grief is why he would have us to search ourselves. And until that is done, there is going to be a real sense in which that God's anger, His justice, is going to be resting upon your head. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son hath not life, but the wrath of God presently abides upon him. John chapter 3 and verse 36. Run to this God whom you have offended. You will find he has open arms and is ready to receive prodigal sons who come to the Father by him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time, the weeks that we've had to work through this psalm of David. And I pray it might be given to us to give us a very practical theology, a knowledge of you, a knowledge of ourselves, a knowledge of Jesus Christ, a knowledge of how he saves sinners, a knowledge of how we are exhorted to come to him and receive the free pardon of sin. Bless us today in heavenly places in Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.